0: This is Beth Oslander, founder of ToesBeach.com, a website that serves to uplift the Playa del Rey community by supporting local news, local business, and local voices. In the face of serious and widely universal challenges, we are proud to have ramped up our focus on news and online services to keep the community informed. In 2020, we launched our first photo contest, giveaway contest, and newsletter, and expanded our website to showcase more local businesses and charities. For 2021, we wanted to start off strong with the launch of our podcast, The PDR Podcast, featuring local stories told by local voices. We at Toes Beach thank you for all your support and sincerely hope you enjoy the first episode of The PDR Podcast. When you're gridlocked on Culver Boulevard coming to or from Playa Vista, an unfortunate position nearly every Angelino can relate to. You're likely hearing a lot of noise. But underneath the sounds of the city and the jostle of traffic, there's a whole other world. I'm Danica Crehan, and this is the PDR Podcast. The Bayona wetlands used to stretch over 2,000 acres between Playa del Rey, Venice, and Baldwin Hills. Marshes, mudflats, salt pans, and sand dunes were just teeming with wildlife, some even native to these specific wetlands. It's a lot more modest now. After developers came in, the wetlands shrank to just over a fourth of its original size at 577 acres. It's the last of its kind in Los Angeles, and while the Bayona Wetlands Ecological Reserve remains, nature humming right under our busy city lives. Its fate is uncertain. Walter Lamb, president of the Biona Wetlands Land Trust, has spent nearly two decades of his life worried about this uncertainty.
1: I moved out here in 2001 with my wife, Courtney, so we're here almost 20 years in Los Angeles. And when we first arrived, so I live in Culver City, and I live very close to the Duquesne uh, Avenue bridge entrance to the Biona Creek bike trail. And so Courtney said, you know, I think that that trail was all the way down to the ocean. And I remember saying, oh, I, you're crazy. That looks like some sort of, you know, sewage drain. I, I took her word for it. I followed her down. We made it all the way down to the wetlands and the ocean. And when we got to the wetlands, we were really blown away by just the, the beauty of everything. We didn't expect to see that, you know, and what we still wrongly believed to be just a, you know, purely urban environment. I remember the first thing I said was, gee, you know, what is this? We'll have to look it up. And we got home and figured out that it was the Vinyl Wetlands and realized instantly that, what we had just seen and appreciated was under, you know, threat of development. So we got involved with the Bayona Wetlands Land Trust as volunteers. And about 10 years later, um, I was invited to join the board. And soon thereafter, I took over as president of the organization which I believe, I believe it's now been almost nine years that I've been um, leading the organization as as the president. Walter
0: fondly remembers when the Bayona Wetlands felt like they were for everyone, a time pre-pandemic when the L.A. Audubon Society would bring in school kids around his daughter's age to visit the wetlands so they could appreciate them, learn about why they were at risk, and understand why they're worth protecting.
1: The first Saturday of every month would be an open wetlands day, and people would come in and they'd say, this is the first time I've ever been to the wetlands, but they had driven through on Culver Boulevard or Jefferson Boulevard, or they had seen it from the 90 freeway, but they'd never actually been inside. And once they get there, it's really eye-opening for them that it's it is it's much larger on the inside than it seems like when you're just driving through. I always make the if you're a Doctor Who fan, um, you know, there's that TARDIS, the telephone booth. It looks like a telephone booth and you get inside and it's this big cavernous thing. And it really feels like that. You get in there and um, you have all these different habitats and just so much wildlife.
0: In 2003, the state of California acquired the remaining 577 acres of the Bayona wetlands through sales and donations of the land with the promise of restoring the wetlands, ending what had been an era of destructive development in that area. On December 30th, 2020, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, or CDFW, finally certified the Final Environmental Impact Report, or EIR, for the Bayona Wetlands Restoration Project. The CDFW, in its announcement of the EIR certification, claimed that the proposed project would enhance and establish native coastal wetlands and upland habitat on 566 of the reserve's 577 acres south of Marina del Rey and east of Playa del Rey. It would restore ecological function to currently degraded wetlands, preserving sensitive habitat for future generations and build climate resilience on a coast vulnerable to sea level rise. The department also stated that the project advances the Newsom administration's executive order of October 7, 2020, focused on harnessing California's vast network of natural and working lands to fight climate change and protect biodiversity. If the project were to be completed, the reserve would be the second largest public open space in all of Los Angeles, behind Griffith Park. After two decades of working towards restoration, Walter was shocked when he read the report.
1: There were three alternatives that were planned. The alternative one is the one that pretty much everyone assumed the state wanted to do, in which they did adopt. And then the the no project alternative, which they called Alternative 4, you have to do that pursuant to the California Environmental Equality Act. But the way they did it is that they actually made it sort of punitive, right? They said, if we don't do one of these three really ambitious projects that involved in some way either knocking down the levees or or punching holes in the levees, right, and having all kinds of flood control implications, then we're not going to do anything, all right? Even stuff that could be done without a CEQA approval, we're not going to allow any new access, you know, there won't be any new educational stewardship programs, like they literally even say in the EIR, you know, all the gates that are locked today will remain locked. And that was sort of our first clue that that didn't seem right. Why would you say that we're either going to do these really, really ambitious projects or we're not even going to open up some of the gates where there's existing trails or where they've already invested, uh, quite honestly, hundreds of thousands of dollars in public bond funds for the purpose of allowing those sites to be accessed. That was kind of our first tip off that something wasn't quite right in the plans.
0: But that's just the beginning of the long list of flaws that Walter sees in the proposed project though he can understand why many have been easily overlooked. The report the CDFW released? It's over 1,200 pages long, and Walter feels he might be the only person who's read it in full.
1: Even with that length, it really did leave in exactly the kinds of gaps that you would not want to leave in an EIR. Really, you want to try to close the door. You want to overanalyze. You, know, you certainly want to analyze the biggest impacts.
0: Walter also feels that, because of the length, Even supposed experts on the restoration have trouble keeping everything straight. And it's that confusion that's causing so much commotion over the project, with environmental activists in the area starkly divided, not only on the merits of the project, but on the most basic aspects of the plan. Walter admitted he's seen proponents post photos of the wetlands natural beauty in an effort to show what the restoration project would be saving, but the photos shared depict areas of the wetlands set to be demolished in the EIR's projections.
1: So just as an example of that, so Hewlett Bay, which is one of the groups that supports the project, they gave a presentation. They have a PhD scientist who gave a presentation who's been very supportive of the project, and I asked, I just said, because she showed that picture, right? It's, It's a really beautiful picture. And I said, well, what will happen to that picture when they do the project? And She said, I don't know, I'll have to go back and look at the IR, but I just know it's going to be better. And so she obviously didn't, she just obviously wasn't aware, despite the fact that she's a PhD scientist giving a presentation about this project. She didn't, it it wasn't clear to her that this was good. This was a a view that was going to be filled in with dirt with a bicycle uh, path put on top.
0: But Walter has bigger concerns than which bike path will go where. He wants reassurances that the wetlands, bike path or not, will exist far beyond his own lifetime.
1: You know, my daughter's nine. So in 2100, you know, keep my fingers crossed, um, she could be 89 at that time. It would be nice to think she'd still be around. She ought to be able to go there and still see the Biona wetlands. I've talked about the the maps that they provide that show the anticipated changes to habitat due to sea level rise. And those maps just unequivocally show the wetlands disappearing over time. And if you look at the map, there's, you know, by 2100, they would project there to be very little wetlands left. The salt pan would be long gone, even though that's technology to be critical habitat. And the counter to that they say is, well, this is better than nothing. If we do nothing, then we'll lose the wetlands even, even sooner. I'm gonna carefully reference, you know, the outgoing president in the last, you know, four years. But, you know, with, with COVID, there was this idea that people would say, oh my God, you know, we've lost so many people. This is just, this, this fatality rate is just crazy. And then some folks would say, oh, but if we had done nothing, then 2 million people would have died. So we've actually saved lives. And that's, I think everyone kind of saw through that as a false dilemma, right? The choice wasn't between, you know, acting extremely incompetently and then even more egregiously incompetently. There was another choice, right? Which was, which could have saved many, many more lives. The choice isn't between losing these habitats in 80 years or losing them sooner. There are other alternatives that they did not analyze in the IR. On top of
0: concerns about the preservation project not actually preserving the wetlands, Walter noted that although the announcement of the EIR certification claims the project will support the governor's executive order addressing climate change and biodiversity, the plan itself does neither of those things.
1: Supporters of the project, both Heal the Bay and Friends of Ida Wetlands, were going to public meetings and saying that one benefit of the project was that it would reduce the number of uh, greenhouse gas emissions that would be uh, in the atmosphere. And that's just false, it's just not true. And, and again, it's not my opinion, the draft EIR actually walks through that step-by-step, step. not entirely intuitive, you have to go to some different appendices, but the the basic idea, right, That from, from their standpoint is um, there'll be some construction. Those construction vehicles will, you know, obviously be pumping greenhouse gas, you know, CO2 emissions into the air. But that once we're done, the new habitat will be better at sequestering carbon right better better at storing carbon in in, in the uh, in the soils and in the vegetation which would be an advantage that you know should be take you know take a little bit step back in the short term to, to make gains in the long term but the math actually does not support that at all so if i were to tell you you know hey if you'll pay me twenty five thousand dollars today maybe if we're lucky 15 years from now you know after we do a project and the you veg- know you'll start getting $286 back per year. You would never do that. That would be just a horrible investment of your money. And it's the same as true with the greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the argument can be made that either way, it's not, a, you know, again, it's, 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 it's not like, um, you know, shutting down certain types of factories, right? There are bigger ways, obviously, bigger fish to fry in terms of, of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. But you, you don't row the boat in the wrong direction. Like when you're desperately trying to reach a destination, you don't row in the opposite direction of that, even a little bit. And that's what this does. That was just the greenhouse gases. If we look at sea level rise, as I discussed, the, the, the director of Fish and Wildlife in, his, in the press release, when the EIR was certified, actually said that this could mitigate or even eliminate the threat of sea level rise. And I, I just wrote back and I just said, I, I, I can't believe that you, the director of Fish and Wildlife, would say that to a publication when your own maps show that you know, we're gonna lose all the wetlands, the habitat for building sparrows, the salt pan. So, so from a sea level rise perspective, again, they will readily admit and have readily admitted that they think this buys another couple of decades. They'll say another couple of decades of buffer or a little more buffer. That's not where my head is at as an environmentalist. There are a number of marsh dependent species that simply will not have habitat by the end of the century, You know, or may, maybe very little in fragmented habitat, which, which is an, another aspect it didn't get very well analyzed in the IR. If you take a square of habitat and you were to stretch it out into a thin line, it, it's not the same habitat value, right? Because what happens is that other species or you know predators have a, an easier way of getting to your your you know your key sensitive species. Just unequivocally, it, it just doesn't support the governor's executive order. It's unfortunate that the people in Sacramento have been led to believe by people that they trust who have, frankly, a career interests and special interests in the project moving forward. I don't enjoy, you know, um, calling people out, really. But it, at this point, there's you know, kind of gotten to the point where we have to say, why is this going forward? How is it that in Sacramento, um, you know, they, they believe that this supports the governor's executive order when just reading the AR, it, it so clearly doesn't.
0: Walter's organization and a few other notable opponents to the current plan have plenty of alternative ideas for how to preserve the wetlands. But their biggest priority is just making sure that the project's stated goal is actually achieved, real, lasting preservation.
1: It has to preserve habitat for our most critical species. This plan just doesn't do that. It just doesn't. It has to incorporate access that is wildlife first. It has to prioritize wildlife. I love to, to ride my bike. That's how I birdwatch. I live in Culver City. I go on the bike trail, my binoculars, my camera. But that's secondary. The most important thing is we got, we have to preserve the habitats.
0: Why do you think so many prominent organizations have signed on to this plan, despite all the discrepancies you pointed out?
1: Sometimes my analogies work and sometimes they don't, but I, I can never help doing them. But I was in the army all peacetime, never served in combat. But I was stationed in Germany. We got to go <clears throat> view the site of a battle that fairly famous, they made a movie about it called The Bridge Too Far, but it was called Operation Market Garden where they wanted to get three bridges all at once to you know, really be able to sort of get in behind you know, German uh, lines. And um, all the generals fell in love with the plan. They just thought it was a really great plan. They, they loved it. And what happened was one of the junior officers was doing a reconnaissance mission and saw that unexpectedly a whole German division had been posted to the rear for R&R, right? They were sort of, it was their downtime. And that was gonna make it really bad for a couple of paratroopers, a relatively small number of paratroopers to try to take that bridge right next to a German division. And unfortunately, the generals um, just could not process that new information because they had kind of flipped a switch, right? Same thing with the Battle of Gettysburg, right? In fact, where Lee fell in love with his plan for a frontal assault and no matter how many times his generals told him that it wasn't gonna work, he, he had committed.
0: On January 29th, the Bayona Wetlands Land Trust filed a legal challenge against the California Department of Fish and Wildlife pursuant to the California Environmental Quality Act. They are joined by a joint lawsuit between Grassroots Coalition and Bayona Ecosystems Education Project. Reporting for Toes Beach, I'm Danica Crehan.